Chapter Twelve of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Powis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Nietzsche. It is not the hour in which to say much about Nietzsche. The dissentient voices are silent. The crowd has stopped howling. But a worse thing is happening to him. The thing of all others he dreaded most, he is becoming accepted. The preachers are quoting him and the theologians are explaining him. What he would himself pray for now are enemies, fierce, irreconcilable enemies. But our age cannot produce such. It can only produce sneering disparagement or frightened conventional approbation. What one would like to say at this particular juncture is that here or again there this deadly antagonist of God missed his aim. But who can say that? He aimed too surely. No, he did not miss his aim. He smote whom he went out to smite. But one thing he could not smite. He could neither smite it, nor unmask it, nor transvalue it. I mean the earth itself, the great, shrewd, wise, all-enduring mother of us all, who knows so much and remains so silent. And sometimes one feels, walking some country road with the smell of upturned sods and heavy leaf mould in one's nostrils, that even Lucifer himself is not as deep or strong or wise as his patient furrowed earth and her blundering children. A rough earth hint, a Rabelaisian ditty, a gross amazing jest, a chuckle of deep satiric humour, and the monstrous thickness of life its friendly aplomb and nonchalance, its grotesque reverence, its shy, shrewd common sense, its tough fibres and portentous indifference to distinction, tumbles us over in the mud for all our aloofness and roars over us like a romping bull-calf. The antidote to Nietzsche is not to be found in the company of the saints. He was too much of a saint himself for that. It is to be found in the company of Shakespearean clodhoppers and Rabelaisian topers and Cervantian serving wenches. In fact, it is to be found, as with the antidotes for other noble excesses, in burying your face in rough moist earth and grubbing for pignuts under the beech trees. A summer's day in the woods with Audrey will put fatality into its place and remove the recurrence of all things to a very modest remoteness. And this is not a relinquishing of the secret of life. This is not a giving up of the supreme quest. It is an opening of another door, a letting in of a different air, a reversion to a more primitive level of the mystery. The way to reduce the tyranny of this proud spirit to its proper proportion is not to talk about love or morality or orthodoxy, or the strength of the vulgar herd. It is simply to call up in one's mind the motley procession of gross, simple, quaint, bulbous, irrepressible objects, human and otherwise, whose mere existence makes it as impossible for Nietzsche to deal with the massiveness of life as it is impossible for anyone else to deal with it. No, we shall not free ourselves from his intellectual predominance by taking refuge with the saints. We shall not do this because he himself was essentially a saint, a saint and a martyr. 
Is it for me now to prove that? It is realized, I suppose, what the history of his spiritual contest actually was. It was a deliberate, self-inflicted crucifixion of the Christ in him, as an offering to the Apollo in him. Nietzsche was, that cannot be denied, an intellectual sadist, and his intellectual sadism took the form as it can. He has himself taught us so. Take many curious forms of deliberately outraging his own most sensitive nerves. This is really what broke his reason in the end. By a process of spiritual vivisection, the suffering of which one dare not conceive, he took his natural sanctity and carved it as a dish fit for the gods until it assumed an Apollonian shape. We must visualize Nietzsche not only as the philosopher with the hammer, but as the philosopher with the chisel. We must visualize him with such a sculptor's tool, standing in the presence of the crucified figure of himself, and altering one by one its natural lineaments, Nietzsche's own lacerated intellectual nerves, with a vantage point of his spiritual vision. He would write the Antichrist because he had killed in his own nature the thing he loved. It was for this reason that he had such a supernatural insight into the Christian temperament. It was for this reason that he could pour vitriol upon its little secrets and hunt it to its last retreats. Let none think he did not understand the grandeur and the terrible intoxicating appeal of the thing he fought. He understood these only too well. What vibrating sympathy as for a kindred spirit, may be read between the lines of his attack on Pascal. Pascal, the supreme type of the Christian philosopher. It must be further realized, for after all, what are words and phrases, that it was really nothing but the Christian conscience in him, that forced him on so desperately to kick against the pricks. It was the Christian conscience in him has he not himself analysed the voluptuous cruelty of that which drove him to seek something, if possible, nobler, austerer, gayer, more innocently wicked than Christianity? It was not in the interests of truth that he fought it. True Christian as he was at heart, he never cared greatly for truth as truth. It was in the interest of a higher ideal, a more exacting, less human ideal, that he crushed it down. The Christian spirit in him set him upon strangling the Christian spirit, and all in the interest of a madness of nobility, itself perforated with Christian conscience. Was nature really Greek compared with Goethe, let us say? Not for a moment. It was in the desperation of his attempt to be so that he seized upon Greek tragedy and made it dance to Christian symbols. This is, let it be clearly understood, the hidden secret of his mania for Dionysius. Dionysius gave him his opportunity, and the worship of this god, also a wounded god, be it remarked. He was able to satisfy his perverted craving for ecstasy of laceration under the shadow of another name. But after all, as Goethe says, feeling is all in all. The name is sound and smoke. 
what he felt were christian feelings the feelings of a mystic a visionary a flagellant what matter by what name you call them christ dionysius it is the secret creative passion of the human heart that sends them both forth upon their crusade is anyone simple enough to think that whatever secret cosmic power melts into human ecstasy it waits to be summoned by certain particular syllables that this arbitrary strangling of the christ in him never altogether ended is proved by the words of those tragic messages he sent to cosima wagner from the aristocratic city of turin when his tormented brain broke like a taut bowstring those messages resembled arrows of fire shot into space and on one was written the words the crucified and on the other the word dionysius the grand and heartbreaking appeal of this lonely victim of his own merciless scourge does not depend for its effect upon us upon any of the particular ideas he announced the idea of the eternal recurrence of all things to take the most terrible is clearly but another instance of his intellectual sadism the worst thing that could happen to those innumerable victims of life for whom he sought to kill his pity was that they should have to go through the same punishment again not once or twice but for an infinity of times and it was just that that he with immense pity for them took so long a killing suddenly felt must be what had to happen had to happen for no other reason than it was intolerable that it should happen again we may note it was not truth he sought but ecstasy and in this case the ecstasy of accepting the very worst kind of issue he could possibly imagine the idea of the superman too is an idea that could only have entered the brain of one pushed on to think at the spearhead of his own cruelty it is a great and terrible idea sublime and devastating this idea of the human race yielding place to another race stronger wiser fairer sterner gayer and more godlike especially noble and compelling is nietzsche's constant insistence that the moment has come for men to take their destiny out of the blind power of evolution and to guide it themselves with a strong hand and a clear will towards a definite goal the fact that this striving force of cruelty to himself and through himself to humanity scourged him on to so formidable an illumination of our path is a proof how unwise it is to suppress any grand perversion such motive forces should be used as nietzsche used his for purposes of intellectual insight not simply trampled upon as evil whether our poor human race ever will surpass itself as he demands and rise to something psychologically different may admit a wide solution it is not an unscientific idea it is not a irreligious idea it has all the dreams of the prophets behind him but who can tell it is quite as possible that the spirit of destruction in us will wantonly ruin this great chance as that we shall seize upon it man has many other impulses besides the impulse of creation 
perhaps he will never be seduced into even desiring such a goal, far less willing it, over long spaces of time. The curious optimism of Nietzsche, by means of which he sought to force himself into a mood of such Dionysian ecstasy as to be able not only to endure fate, but to love it, is yet another example of the subterranean conscience of Christianity working in him. In the presence of such a mood, and indeed in the presence of nearly all his great dramatic passions, it is Nietzsche, and not his humorous critic, who is with our Lord in Gethsemane. One does not drink of the cup of fate lovingly without bloody sweat. The interesting thing to observe about Nietzsche's ideas is that the wider they depart from what was essentially Christian in him, the less convincing they grow. One cannot help feeling he recognized this himself, and, infuriated by it, strode further and further into the jungle. For instance, one cannot suppose that the cult of the blonde beast and the cult of Caesar Borgia were anything but mad reprisals directed towards himself in savage revenge, blind blows struck at random against the lofty and penetrating spirituality in which he had indulged when writing Zarathustra. But there is a point here of some curious psychological interest, to which we are attracted by certain treacherous red glow upon his words, when he speaks of this sultry, crouching, spotted, tail-lashing mood. Why is it precisely this Borgian type, this Renaissance type, among the world's various lust darlings that he chose to select? Why does he not oppose to the Christian ideal its true opposite, the naive, artless, fawn-like, pagan child of nature who has never known remorse? The answer is clear. He chooses the Borgian type, the type which is not free from superstition, which is always wrestling with superstition, the type that sprinkles holy water upon its dagger, because such a type is the inevitable product of the presence among us of the Christian ideal. The Christian ideal has made a certain complication of wickedness possible, which were impossible without it. If Nietzsche had not been obsessed by Christianity, he would have selected as his ideal blonde beast that perfectly naive, unfallen man of imperturbable nerves, of classic nerves, such as life abounded in before Christ came. He makes indeed a pathetic struggle to idealize this type, rather than the conscience-stricken Renaissance one. He lets his fingers stray more than once over the red-stained limbs of real sunburnt Pompeian heathenism. He turns feverishly the wanton pages of Petronius to reach this unsullied, imperial animal, but he cannot reach him. He never could reach him. The consecrated dagger of the Borgia gleams and scintillates between. Even, therefore, in the sort of wickedness he evokes, Nietzsche remains Christ-ridden and Christ-mastered. The matter is made still more certain when one steals up silently, so to speak, behind the passages where he speaks of Napoleon, if a reader has the remotest psychological clairvoyance, he will be aware of a certain strain and tug, a certain mental jerk and contortion, 
whenever Napoleon is introduced. Yes, he could engrave the fatal N over the mantelpiece at Weimar. To do so was the last solace of his wounded brain. But he was never really at ease with the great emperor. Never did he, in pure, direct, classic recognition, greet him as the demonic master of destiny, with the Goethean salutation. Had Goethe and Napoleon, in their notorious encounter, wherein they recognized one another as men, been interrupted by the entrance of Nietzsche, do you suppose they would not have stiffened and recoiled? Recognizing their natural enemy, the cross-bearer, the Christ-obsessed one, Il Santo. The difference between the two types can best be felt by recalling the way in which Napoleon and Goethe treated the Christ-legion compared with Nietzsche's desperate wrestling. Napoleon uses religion calmly and deliberately for his high policy and worldly statecraft. Goethe uses religion calmly and deliberately for his aesthetic culture and his mystic symbolism. Neither of them are, for one moment, touched by it themselves. They are born pagans. And when this noble, tortured soul flings himself at their feet in feverish worship, one feels that, out of their Homeric Hades, they look wonderingly, unintelligently at him. One of the most laughable things in the world is the attempt some simple critics make to turn Nietzsche into an ordinary, honest infidel, a kind of poetic Bradlow Ingersoll, offering to humanity the profound discovery that there is no God, that when we die, we die. The absurdity is made complete when this naive, revivified pagan is made to assure us us, the average sensual men, that the path of wisdom lies not in resisting, but in yielding to temptation, not in spiritual wrestling to transform ourselves, but in the brute courage to be ourselves and live out our type. The good folk who play with such a childish illusion would do well to scan over again their pagan heroes, branding and flaying of the philosopher Strauss. Strauss was precisely what they tried to turn Nietzsche into, a rancorous, insensitive, bullying, materialistic heathen, making sport of the cross and drinking lager beer. Nietzsche loathed lager beer, and the cross burnt day and night in his tormented Dionysian soul. It occurs to me sometimes that if there had been no German Reformation, and no overrunning of the world by simple evangelical Protestantism, it would be still possible to bring into the circle of the Church's development the lofty and desperate passion of this saintly Antichrist. After all, why should we concede that those agitated, voluptuous, secret devices to get saved, those super-subtle, subliminal tricks of the weak and the perverted to be revenged on the beautiful and the brave, which Nietzsche laments were ever bound up in the same cover as the Old Testament, must remain forever the dominant note in the faith of Christendom. While the successor of Caesar, while the Pontifex Maximus of our spiritual Rome, 
still represents the infallible element of the world's nobler religious taste there is yet perhaps a remote chance that this sentimentalizing of the mountain summits this cheapening of our planet's passion play may be cauterized and eliminated and yet it is not likely much more likely is it that the real secret of jesus together with the real secret of nietzsche and they do not differ in essence for all his bourgeois will remain the sweet and deadly fatalities that they have always been for the few the few the few who understand them for the final impression one carries away after reading nietzsche is the impression of distinction of remoteness from vulgar brutality from sensual baseness from the clumsy compromises of the world it may not last this zarathustrian mood it lasts with some of us an hour with some of us a day with a few of us a handful of years but while it lasts it is a rare and high experience as from an ice-bound promontory stretching out over the abysmal gulfs we dare to look creation and annihilation for once full in the face liberated from our own lusts or using them contemptuously and indifferently as engines of vision we see the life and death of the worlds the slow long-drawn moonlit wave of universe drowning nothingness we see the races of men falling rising stumbling advancing and receding and we see the new race and the hours of the great noontide fulfilling the prophet's hope and we see the end of that also and seeing all this because the end of our watchtower is so ice-cold and keen we neither tremble or blench the world is deep and deep as pain and deeper than pain is joy we have seen creation and have exulted in it we have seen destruction and have exulted in it we have watched the long quivering shadow of life shudder across our glacial promontory and we have watched that drowning tide receive it it is enough it is well we have had our vision we know now what gives to the gods that look their faces wear it now only remains for us to return to the familiar human stage to the gala night within the lonesome latter years to be gay and hard and superficial that ice-bound promontory into the truth of things has only known one explorer whose alloy alloy lama sabachthani was not the death cry of his pity and that explorer did we only dream of his return end of chapter 12